Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous. Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous Film Twitter.com, and this is the Mr. Movies Podcast. What about this film? It's called Let Pet Eat Jate. It is a lovely story about a small balloon that gets lost in the river on the way to a cathedral for French school. Uh, I'm so sick of this shit, Sam. Sick of what? The beauty of cinema? No, I, just, I, I don't want to watch these anymore. I'm sick of feeling things. I'm sick of watching people care about where the camera goes. I'm sick of watching actors talk a language that I don't speak. Because you know what we say about books, Sam, right? Please don't say the line. It's just that movies are books for people who fuck. Why should I have to read my movies, Sam? I want something masculine. Something to make me remember when things were good. Alright. I'll bite. When were things good? God, I just wish that I could go back to when men were men. You know, like, uh, the year 19... Don't tell me you're one of those guys that thinks that things were the best in 1950. God, no. I mean, the year 19. Men were snakes, Sam. They, like, let let them bite them. They were men. Tell what... Men today, constantly avoiding snakes, will see one in their path and cower. I miss the days when men would go headlong, headstrong into them, and just let the venom course through their veins, not knowing that they were just minutes away from their death. Ever since Zack Snyder released, or really had his trailer of the Snyder Cut leaked, it's probably a manufactured leak if we're being completely honest, I've been thinking about Zack Snyder and his entire filmography, and looking through it, we have like the Dawn of the Dead thing. Which is a lot of fun. You can't say that's not a fun movie. It's not great, but it's fun. It's very emblematic of, like, the skate park era of film editing that was happening on, like, MTV. Because that movie feels like a panic attack. I don't know what they did. I remember hearing something about they did some, like, weird stuff with the bit rate that makes everything just feel a bit more chaotic. Everything seems a lot less smooth. Everything seems like it's being fast-forwarded, which is kind of what a panic attack feels like. But, I don't know, the more I sit back, I just, you know, think about Man of Steel, probably the greatest superhero movie of all time, where Superman gets hugs, and then it dawned on me. Sam, I know what we're watching. We're putting on 300! Oh, man. You know how I keep on harping on about time capsule movies? Movies that are perfectly emblematic of the time period that they came out of? 
The best example of these obviously being like movies about the free love movement with hippies, which I am realizing I probably bring up hippies in every single episode, and this is probably a deep pathology that I need to address, but now's not the time nor place because it's 11 at night and I have to edit through the night to get this shit out. Ha ha. Ha. I'm gonna be up all night. But, uh, you know, the other being, like, 80s action movies. That was very, very emblematic of Reagan's America. When America's strong, we're gonna be fighting the invasion of whatever. Robots, aliens, Russians. But the further along we get down the timeline, whenever we think of 90s movies, we tend to shift our focus towards clothes. Like, clothes and general aesthetics. A lot of boom-bap rap, you know, things that you just associate with the decade, and then things get kind of weird in the 2000s, because early 2000s, it was the turn of the new millennium, and none of us really knew what the turn of the new millennium would bring. A lot of people thought, too, what's the next millennium going to be like? That's how we ended up with, like, Xenon Girl of the 31st Century, I think is what it was called, where everybody wore chrome and everything was very tight and strange, and you saw, like, a resurgence in the popularity of Star Trek, Yeah, it's a bunch of space stuff, and we thought it was going to be the future. And then when we quickly realized that going into the future actually takes centuries, not days, that luster wore off, and that's when I I had a joke about the perfect encapsulation of the early to mid-2000s was Freddy Got Fingered becoming Jackass, that, like, the Jackass movie series. Which is kind of right. You know, Freddy Gutfinger was the innocence before 9-11, and then Jackass was like, ah, shit, nothing's good, is it? <laughs> it just crashes and burns. But um, as I was getting my very useful degree in American history, one thing that I started focusing in on was uh, really like Vietnam-era movies, specifically movies about the Vietnam War. But What is equally as interesting are the movies that surrounded the Vietnam War, which had to deal with hurt masculinity. This is something that I focused in on a lot, mainly because, like, in Vietnam, the whiplash to um, us completely getting our asses kicked in Vietnam after, I don't know, trying to level the entire country and still getting pushed out. Kissinger can't rot in hell fast enough. But the uh, these films that came out after it, like Rambo 2, um, pretty much all of 80s cinema kind of is a knee-jerk reaction to all that. Because, it, I mean, ended in like 1975, and then we start seeing this resurgence of U.S. Um, action movies. A lot of these had to do with this hurt masculinity of, oh, we're supposed to be the strongest country on Earth, but we can't even beat anyone. We lost in Korea, and now we lost in Vietnam. Are we ever going to win a war again? Because, you know, like we were coasting off the victory of World War II, which really we were um took all the credit for the soviets defeating nazi germany not us uh but like this hurt masculinity produces really interesting cultural products that uh kind of spin off of it and um this is also true in the 2000s whenever we look into the invasion of iraq and then the subsequent invasion into afghanistan uh I don't know if you know about this. Uh, We didn't win either of those wars. I believe that we are still in Afghanistan. I don't think we ever left. And uh, ultimately, we just, like, don't win wars. Which, I mean, you put that in air quotes. Does it even matter if you win the war? But ultimately, it's like U.S. domination isn't what we were led to believe it was after World War II. So, as American pride and masculinity gets hurt, you get these weird... uh, I'm not going to say that they're inherently fascist, but they definitely 
give way to fascist type arguments of like you dying for your country is the right thing to do uh, whenever you die everybody's going to miss you a lot and you're going to be a hero and they're going to name something after you don't you want that and uh, the more I thought about it <clears throat> the more that I realized that this is just the movie 300 uh, every war every air quotes winnable war whatever that means uh, had an accompanying movie along with it um so like for every apocalypse now there's a rambo 2 for every first half of full metal jacket there's a second half of full metal jacket so what does this have to do with 300 in my opinion 300 is just the war on terror version of vietnam war movies and like the general argument of this is like you know what i would do if i was in the middle east hear me out brother it would be just me and my platoon, surrounded on all sides. Just slipping into the, uh, if I just had a gun and a can-do attitude, except for my bum knee that I hurt in middle school playing football. That's why I couldn't make it through boot camp or sign up. But like, you can't just make this movie right away, right? You can't just make The Hurt Locker, or Zero Dark Thirty, or American Sniper, or the Jack Reacher series. Like, you, you see what I mean, right? There's so many of them, you can't just make these this early. 300 came out in like 2007, so you had to be covert with how dangerous you thought the Muslim hordes were. Why not call them Persian and have them be the most violent group of people threatening your perfect little white society? Uh, seriously, that's the argument that this movie makes. And there's no better way to explain what I mean than running through the plot, ultimately, which, I mean, there really isn't too much to it. The beginning of the movie is packed with ideology. It is packed with ideology. But we're going to walk through this plot together. You and me. Like a group of soldiers and Zack Snyder's hit film, 300. movie opens up on a man holding a baby and checking his skull shape. Throughout this, there's this overarching narrative of the life and times of, like, a Spartan, which was, like, I don't know how to say it, it's like the torture you'd experience before a crucifixion? Underneath this, um, it cuts to a young boy with a hairline somehow worse than mine, uh, getting the living shit kicked out of him by a grown-ass man. This cuts immediately to him as a seven-year-old, committing his first murder via punching a kid in the face until he died. You know, the heart warms. He's a grown-up now. It's a coming-of-age movie. And the funniest thing about all this is how erotic it all is once he becomes a grown soldier man. Like the way that they describe a wolf hunting him. It's like a, his big phallic nose sniffing the earth. His powerful abs and broad shoulders. He howls. And I'm ready to yiff. You sound like you are projecting again. No, I'm not. It's not fear that grips him. Only a heightened sense of things. The cold air in his lungs. Windswept pines moving against the coming night. His hands are steady. His form. <laughs> Perfect. 
tonally, this movie's a mess. Uh, the coolest thing, though, is how they stole that one Titus Andronicus song and did their version, which is the closest you can get to just outright stealing a song and almost getting away with it. Which, funny enough, they didn't get away with it. And it's one of the few instances of where key music? I think that's what it's called. It's whenever a, um, a director goes, I want a song like this in the music in the movie that I'm making. And they plug the music in, and then the editor just tries to work with like a composer or get the licensing rights to a similar song and then sync up their movie to a song that's like that. And ultimately it ends up really, really similar. Uh, Tony Zhao, uh, Every Frame of Painting, had a very good video of this on YouTube, and it's a shame that he went on to actually have a career in doing this and can't keep making free videos for me. They're the absolute best. I've learned so much from that. But like, I really want you to hear how close these two songs are. So, uh, roll the music, Sam! Here is the song from Titus, a movie produced in 1999. And here is the song from 300. A movie produced in I don't remember the year. After it. Like 2007. I think. Who cares. This film is filled with fash sympathetic imagery. Uh, all throughout it. It's a uh, dirty, dangerous, dark-skinned hordes are coming to show you the skulls of former royalty, meaning that they kept the crown on the skulls an intimidation thing. All this is juxtaposed with these calls for order by the Spartan armies. This is entry-level fascism, honestly. Dark-skinned brutes coming to take your wives and threaten your domination in the area, and you, the white warrior, the only thing stopping them from taking over. Like, ah, scary, black people. Fucking babies. A Persian messenger stops by, has a little pop in, and says that he's bringing an offer of earth and water. And this scene is weird. Uh, it shows you how Zack Snyder really doesn't know how to write. The man can't write at all, actually, if I'm being completely honest. Because during this scene, there's this whole dialogue piece that's like, A man is only as good as his word. And you speak words. So when you speak these words, your mouth, it will be the chosen man with you talking. Man talk. Help man. Sam, please, talking with your words. Are Good you okay, Mr. Mahomes? Sam, call an ambulance. Before you speak, Persian, know that in Sparta, everyone, even a king's messenger, is held accountable for the words of his voice. Now, what message do you bring? Earth and water. There's just weird dialogue all throughout it. Uh, like the Spartan lady, who's our main character, uh, Leonidas, it's his wife, who's the Queen, I guess? They keep on calling her Queen, so I'm assuming she's a Queen. Even says something like, You can't afford shit here. And he goes, Ah, time to be sexist. And then she goes, Nah, I can, I can speak among men, because I only give birth to men. Which I... 
burn, I guess. Damn, you got him there, <laughs> ma'am. Do not be coy or stupid, Persian. You can afford neither in Sparta. What makes this woman think she can speak among men? Because only Spartan women give birth to real men. Let us walk to cool our tongues. They go off to talk business and we get a shot that is one of the most iconic shots in the mid-2000s, which is King Leonidas doing a no-growth, kicking a man into a bottomless pit and screaming, this is Sparta. Which is hilarious, because, like, there's no guardrail around this big gaping hole. There's no telling how many kids have probably just died running around this. Like, I imagine that it's 20,000 feet deep, and over 5,000 feet is just old people's bones. Old bones from people who died in the hole. His reason for doing this is the most neckbeard riding type thing you'll ever hear. He goes, uh, you threaten my brothers. You threaten milady. We'll taste the cold steel of my katana, good sir. I'm a gentleman and a scholar. And that, like, iconic line was after the Persian messenger says something like, This is madness. This is insanity. This isn't a dignified society. Mods! Mods! I reported this guy! And then, you know, like, Leonidas just screams, This is Sparta, and kicks him square in the chest and knocks him into the hole. This is blasphemy! This is madness! This is Sparta! Like, every now and then in writing, you can always just tell whenever the writer's jacking off. In um, Aaron Sorkin's oeuvre of writing his stuff, uh, we call this start to finish. After doing this act of murder on a messenger, uh, it's a mass murder. People who were very alive are being thrown into the big hole because they didn't like the words that the other person said. Sam, what happened to having a good debate? A simple, by your logic... Or two. I forgot to mention, this whole scene is the most erotic looking thing too. It's hilariously out of place. Every guy has like maybe 2% body fat and is shredded. And they're all standing around wearing just underwear and a cape. Flexing as hard as physically possible. And all of them look like they're about to faint. They have like veins popping out of their foreheads and they're standing in a way that like a mannequin in like a high fashion store would stand. <laughs> Just a person very, very clearly in pain. And then we're off to the E4s. These guys with this uh, bad cystic acne and hoodies that still believe in the old gods and uh, apparently you need their blessing to go to war? Which, like, if that's the case, why do you have new gods? They start smoking some sort of rock thing, and this lady in silk starts to dance around and we get our first titties of the entire movie. And this shit blew my mind when I was, like, 12. Well, that was until you learn how the E4s use them physically by wedging in this whole angle of, like, ah, you're so beautiful and smart. You're, you are my slave, though. And it's just, like, they're just getting away with it. Also, um, do want to point out, that's the last that we ever see of these enslaved women. Zack Snyder went, I'm just going to introduce that thought, and we're just moving on. You do get some epic internet atheist commentary here, which, like, let me remind you, this was massive in the mid-2000s. They show the priests getting bathed in gold by the Persian army messengers, I guess, who paid to tell them 
to like tell the Spartans not to attack or something along those lines. And in the mid-2000s, I'm telling you, everyone was shocked to see you point out the fact that people in the church can be bought <laughs> with money. This was like the most mind-blowing shit. People are like, oh my god, Zack Snyder went there. Keep This movie pulls no punches. It said the most fucked up stuff. In the movie, they said that sometimes churches get money and don't do good stuff with it. <laughs> Damn, Zach, you wildin'. You can't say that. Inbred swine. More creature than man. Creatures whom even Leonidas must bribe and beg. The no Spartan king has gone to war without the Eva's blessing. After this, we get glimpses of how Zack Snyder doesn't know how to write a woman in his movies. His wife, Leonidas's wife, I mean, literally exists to remind him that she's hot and that he has sex with her all the time. Both conversations up until this point have been about her having kids and how she's the only person who would turn him on all the time, right? Some line like, Why do you care about the words of another woman? I should be the only woman whose words turn you on. <laughs> And I guess that the whole point is that she's hot and they have sex every night? I don't get it. I really don't. Zach's like, you know when men were men? When men, men were men when, when men were, men were men with men. Men. Is it happening again? Men. Men. Sam, ambulance. updates, polls for upcoming shows where you can control the episodes, and one new episode a week. Wow, what a deal. That That's good, and I'm, I should subscribe. Goodbye. You should. Go to patreon.com slash mrmovies now to start your subscription today. Where did he go? Did you seriously leave me? There's a train coming, sir. <laughs> shot of the army leaving after being told not to go to war we get this really funny shot of a spartan at the front of the pack playing like two long yield recorders <laughs> tooting out camp town racers as this army <laughs> of the most shredded erotic men make their way <laughs> all dusty <laughs> which is where they meet uh, another army along the way there's this whole scene of them saying, like, we've heard you're going to war with some dark-skinned fellows, and we want in. And the whole army is white, 
Like, noticeably white. The shot that they have, it's a big shot of the army of all white guys. Like, noticeably white. I don't know how else to emphasize this. And I get that thematically, it's supposed to be like the northern Italians or some shit, but the symbolism isn't lost on me. Zack, you knew what you were doing. On the way to their battle, I think? I don't know. I can't see anything. Zack forgot to light half this movie. A little blonde-haired child comes out and says that they came with beasts from the blackness. Yes, beasts from the blackness and killed everyone. Like, fuck! They came with beasts from the blackness. With their claws and fangs, they grabbed them. Everyone. This cuts to a super crucifixion, too, where the Persians had literally nailed innocent people to a tree that had twisting limbs. And I mean, look, man, you knew what you were doing with this. There's this whole scene after this with ships being crushed by waves, and they sink it up to new metal, which is just really funny. <laughs> this movie really is a perfect time capsule, the angry middle America dude who wears shorts that go beneath his knees. And this cuts to some boring shit with the queen, who cares? Then cuts to a glimpse of where the other army came from, which were slaves who fought for their freedom, I think? And they're fighting a guy who looks like a gilded dwarf from Skyrim. Uh, Michael Fassbender's doing the psycho shit of boarding up a brick wall with the bodies of Persians in between the stones? And it's supposed to be a good, inspiring thing, the way that this is all framed. Anyway, he, like, literally slices the hand that whips him before delivering the classic response to Our arrows will black out the sun by saying then we shall fight in the shade. After this, there's this weird scene with a massively physically deformed guy wearing Spartan armor who shows that he can fight and wants to earn his father's reputation or something like that, like keep on the honor of his father who was a Spartan. And Leonidas just says, yeah, I can't use you. And then that's that. It's after this that we see our first battle with the Persians. And to set this up so you know that there are way too many people they have to fight, they simulate an earthquake, but none of our brave Spartan boys are scared. Like, not a single one. Which leads us to an action sequence where one guy kills maybe 50 people single-handedly, all because his abs were the most visible. It's just the most embarrassing writing, honestly. Stuff like... Uh, you know, like a guy in battle saying, like, They look thirsty. And then a guy responding, Well then, let's give them something to drink. Like, who the fuck is this for? After beating an army they had no business beating, they finally get the arrow storm that they dreamed of. There's maybe a hundred thousand arrows in the sky, and again, not a single guy dies. The logistics of this are insane, too, because the accuracy is incredible. They also have launched these arrows from, like, I don't know, well over a mile away. They even show our boys being so not scared after this that, like, they're laughing while the arrows are hitting their shields and almost impaling them, but brutally bludgeoning the corpses that sit around them. Because that's just how tough we are in the face of adversity. Am I right, boys? Nothing scares me. 
because I'm a very brave boy. Sergeant Coward! <laughs> what the hell are you laughing at? We had to save. What? Fight in the shade! <laughs> After this, we see the Spartans clean up. After the war, by stepping on the chest of everyone who sticks both their hands up, clearly surrendering, and then stabbing them in the face, which I imagine is just probably U.S. foreign policy during the Iraq War, too. Then we meet him. The king himself. Our big baddie. The the gilded uh, god emperor, I think is what they call him. Xerxes. A man coated in gold who has a gold palace and even walks on the backs of his slaves as stairs. It's exactly the type of iconography you'd see whenever people talk about the depravity of other cultures coming for your goods. They also pitch shift his voice down like five octaves. (laughs) It kind of plays out like a parody. Like he'd pitch shift him down to sound like this if you were making fun of how weird the scene is. Because he's doing this long, complicated speech about power dynamics and, you know, the nature of conquering. And Leonidas is just super passe about the whole ordeal. Like, oh man, I'd love to go, but I got this leg cramp. (laughs) Haha, sometimes being the tough guy means being funny. I'm I'm the clown of this army? Imagine what horrible fate awaits my enemies, when I would gladly kill any of my own men for victory. And I would die for any one of mine. You Greeks take pride in your logic. I suggest you imply it. Consider the beautiful lands you so vigorously defend. Picture it reduced to ash at my whim. Time passes without telling us, and we're all of a sudden fighting a mass group of men called the Immortals. That's right, your super tough battalion will even come across a group of men who can't die. But you'll win, I swear. It's just more poking and stabbing over and over again, this whole sequence. It's... Done entirely color-corrected to be as silver and blue as physically possible, which I think that Zack Snyder just fell in love with and decided to make every DC movie that he'd make after this in this shade. And they even unchain this, like, let's be real, physically deformed and practically handicapped guy to stab as many people as he can before he's brutally killed. Like, they're weaponizing this poor simple dude just to have him die as a plot point I don't know why you put this in this movie. And I know that the big argument is people are like, oh, but this is actually pretty true to the source material. Well, people take source material and take artistic liberties all the time. Why did you have a clearly mentally handicapped guy get brutally murdered at the hands of soldiers? Zack. They win, because this is a movie for guys in Ed Hardy shirts who can't handle losing. And it kicks off this new metal song with a montage of all sorts of armies they had to face, which are just incredibly racist stereotypes of Asian guys and Africans who literally have jet black skin, who body paint with bones as armor, and they also have, like, weaponized rhinoceroses. Like, at this point of the movie, I think Zack Snyder just gave up and decided to make the most fash movie physically possible. Because anybody who doesn't live and breathe this shit probably already checked out, so now you deliver to the guys who respond well to this type of messaging, I guess. They even cut to a fat man who is a completely deformed body. He's missing both of his arms, and on these, like, nubs where they've been, like, cut at the forearm, they've tied saw blades... 
and they're beheading African generals that didn't please their god king. And it really is the most ham-fisted delivery you could imagine. Like, they even toss the guy's severed head up in the air, just to make sure that you know this is what the outsiders will do to you if you don't go win. Go win, you brave boy. Win. Fight. The world depends on you. Guy who wears ergonomic flip-flops and yells at his girlfriend in public. And Zack makes the very bold move of also killing elephants on screen. So there's that. You kind of got to applaud that. Pretty sure everybody likes elephants, and if an elephant died in front of everybody, I think we'd all cry. Zack Snyder said, fuck it. I'm going to kill an elephant in my movie, and there's nothing you can do about it. He kills like three. I'm proud of you, Zack. I'll give you that one. You did something you knew people would get upset at. And for like 40 minutes, it's non-stop action sequences, all of it ending with one guy having his son's head cut off in battle. Like, they just killed, well, I don't know, thousands of people, but one of theirs dying was just too much for this group to handle. And this cuts to that hunchbacked man who tried to be a Spartan in this hedonism den under Xerxes, and it's just like 50 women coated in golden snakes dancing for him, and man, we really let Zack get away with this scene, didn't we? Uh, I mean... Isn't this the argument that people made during the white man's burden era of colonial justification? That like, ah, uh, uh, yes, slavery was bad, but they were bad too. Uh, they, they, had, they had slaves, and they had gold too, which is bad. That an uh, African guy would be rich, their empire be rich, which uh, you only get rich from being bad, which is what I learned in history, because every person I idolize is a bad person who got rich from completely fucking over everybody, historically. Yeah, good job. That's justified. And also, this argues that the Persians were only about being depraved people, because they only sought pleasure via money or women, but didn't know true glory, which was... Wait, hang on. Let me just uh, check my notes. Ah, Dying at the hands of the military. I see. Thank you for this argument, Zach. Seeing that one guy was beheaded as the Dark Knight of the Soul for this film, I guess, they've only had, like, three deaths total in their squad of 300 versus, like, the 100,000 that they've killed. And they're sad about it? I don't know. Uh, This is the excuse that they use to deliver this whole monologue about how Even when staring in the face of fear, you need to stand firm and not budge. No matter how spooky the strong boys are that you're fighting, you should still die. Because it's honorable. They even have the guy whose son was beheaded say something like, Him dying is the best honor of my life. I just wish that I told him that I loved him. It's not that my son gave up his life for his country. It's just that I never told him that I loved him the most. That he stood by me with honor. That he was all that was best in Again, this is just an argument for the nobility of military service. Which fucking sucks. It's such a cynical speech because, like, this is exactly what military recruiters are banking on you believing. Like, yes, you may die, but imagine how everyone will miss you. And how proud they'll be for you defending what's rightfully ours. Come on. Go out a hero. You know you want to. 
Come on. Just try it. Just a little bit. Also, I chose to skip over this, but the queen back at home was raped by some guy trying to coup d'etat Rome, and it's bad. I don't like seeing this in film. Like, I genuinely don't. But, like, she stabs him in the stomach, and like a like a month later, after this um, rape, and in front of the entire Senate, she does this, and gold coins fall out of him. And that's that plot point. After this, it's the big battle time. This is where we see that hunchback guy who's become a traitor. And he's got a cool hat. Uh, and they're calling Xerxes the God King. Like, I don't, I don't know, it's embarrassing. It's all incredibly embarrassing writing. <laughs> and this goes on for so long. Uh, you can tell Zack was just trying to hit that two-hour runtime. But then it happens. Every single one of the Spartans get their shit kicked in, because there's only 300 of them, and Xerxes had like a million soldiers, all trained and actually positioned. But it's here that we learn that the entire story narration has been told by a one-eyed soldier who fought alongside Leonidas, and was specifically sent back home to tell the story about how brave and strong him and the boys were. And it's this big rallying call, arguing that there's honor and death through military service, which cranes upwards to show this massive army that's been created because of his brave story, the story of Leonidas and the boys who wouldn't say no. And I guess that it's saying that through your death, your country will become stronger? I don't know. It's buckwild seeing fascism this explicitly laid out before a general audience, and the fact that it got almost zero pushback is... Ah, what's the word for it? Oh, upsetting? And horrifying? Who knows? And that's 300, baby. Fuck. <laughs> what a nightmare. I'm shocked that this film exists. <laughs> Holy shit. Alright, so... Yes. Before anybody criticizes... But Zack Snyder is... He's known to follow source material very closely. And yes, it happens that certain portions of his source material were racist. So you can't really fault a man for being a man of craft. Uh, here, here, here's the thing. Don't, don't make it if you don't like it. And um, I'm not going to give the benefit of the doubt to the guy who's making a movie about the Fountainhead... Ayn Rand's literary masterpiece that involves rape apologia and free market economics? There's no excusing the fact that this film got made, but ultimately, going back and looking at it, there's two things that stand out to me completely with 300. One of them being the fact that this is an incredibly accurate marker of where we were in the mid-2000s. Because if you think about it, in the mid-2000s, um, what was like the dominant sport that everybody was watching? It was like UFC. It was ultimate fighting. It was MMA. It was uh, people looking up brutal tackle montages on YouTube. It was, you know, a time of overt masculinity. So this as a cultural signifier just shows where we were as a country, at least middle America was as a country, because everybody was wearing tough guy Ed Hardy shirts, was wearing bedazzled jeans, everybody only worked out their arms and chest. 
You know, everybody had Oakley sunglasses so you couldn't see any portion of their eyes. It was all about looking as tactical as physically possible. So yes, the movie where people were naked and showing nothing but their abs the entire time. Unsurprising that this appealed to a general audience that believed that, you know, had they not sprained their ankle when they were in 8th grade, they could have been this good, if not better. And it really does appeal to a belief that it's like, all it takes is a few good men to keep our country safe. And you know what we call those few good men? The soldiers of the United States of goddamn America. Oorah. And the other um, signifier of this is the fact that this movie impacted film a lot harder than any great film that we can think of today. You know, you think about what films impacted us heavily in the mid-2000s. All right, Jackass. Jackass was huge. Uh, Anchorman, that style of light improv comedy where everybody's just kind of talking at each other. That Judd Apatow line of thinking. And then 300. Movies that are unapologetic in their masculinity that largely appeal to a group of, I'm assuming, mostly either insecure people or people that are just, their politics are who looks the toughest. Yeah, like it or not, this film is important as an analytical lens. (laughs) We can't just shove it off to the side no matter how hard we try. We're going to be stuck with this one for a while. And the more that Zack Snyder is rewarded for his films, the more that people feel bad for him, the more leeway he's going to be given to properly adapt all the things that he's influenced by, which Zack Snyder seems to be influenced by media where men are men, and taxes are low, and the government is tyranny. That is a theme that he has in his movies, where it's uh, he could sneak it in covertly sometimes, where it'll be like... Ah, you know, Superman taking down the drone. But at the same time, it's uh, Zack Snyder is not critical of, like, the U.S. military. Zack Snyder is critical of the government taking his money. And he is very, very loud about how much he doesn't like this. Which is really funny that he's going to be going for an Ayn Rand book after this. Because I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, you know, Ayn Rand's most seminal work, the one that she's known the most for, and the one that makes college libertarians the most unbearable people on the planet, is Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, which is a book that's like, I don't know, 2,000 pages thick, and is just mostly like the ramblings of a an insane person, an incredibly selfish guy who's mad about railroad taxes? Something like that. And... As these films were coming out, the first one got a ton of funding, and it was horribly received, because, uh, believe it or not, people who are in the arts tend to lean left, so you end up with, like, a director who's willing to push the book that inspired Ronald Reagan (laughs) to cut as much social safety net funding as physically possible. Uh, you're completely... Uh, unsurprised to find out that that movie not only folded in on itself, but the subsequent sequels had less and less money, so the actors became less and less known, (laughs) until eventually you just get to guys who were rejected by uh, UCB and were yes-and improv guys who were just craving to be in front of a camera. (laughs) And I'm going to be completely unsurprised when the Fountainhead does the same exact thing. Sorry, I know that the mentality behind all of Ayn Rand's work is incredibly bad. Luckily for us, it's also incredibly dull and boring. The Ayn Rand was an incredibly bitter woman who literally only cared about taxes and men being men and getting what they want. And uh, yes, the Fountainhead largely revolves around that theme. 
I'm not as scared of the Fountainhead as I think I should be, but I'm not going to be surprised whenever we find out that Mark Cuban completely bankrolls this project whenever it ends up happening in a post-COVID world. Whenever we talk about cutting government funding, God, that's going to flop so fucking hard. But Mark Cuban even has a yacht named The Fountainhead, if I remember right. It's like one of these like $120 million yachts. So he's going to end up funding a portion of this film, and it's going to be incredibly funny when the only people that they can manage to pull up will be like James Woods and Kelsey Grammer <laughs> doing a movie that I don't even know what The Fountainhead's about. Probably about the age of consent. I don't know. That's what libertarians are way too focused on, right? But yeah, I guess that, that concludes 300. <laughs> oh man, this movie sucks. I really hate talking about films that I hate. I really do. Because it's so easy to end up being the guy who watches movies and tells you everything that's wrong with them. But ultimately, is that a guy that you want to hang out with? Because I disagree. I wouldn't want to hang out with somebody who tells me everything that was wrong with The Wolf of Wall Street. Because you end up being like Cinema Sins, where every single point that you make, there's a little dinging bell afterwards. You know, like, uh, they call themselves the Spartans, but um, why would you name yourself after a condom company? Haha, <laughs> kidding. Ding! Like, that's great entertainment. I'm really happy that you guys spend like a week making this, and you're all making high six figures off of doing cool jokes like what if Trolls 2 is about internet trolls and instead of presents they give each other Rick Rolls and then ding so I really ultimately do not like doing movies that <laughs> I don't think are good but 300 like it or not is an incredibly important cultural signifier of America's hurt masculinity and the fact that we keep on managing to get ourselves... I can't... That's an unfair way to say it. We keep on putting ourselves in the Middle East and then losing wars and then utterly fucking up these countries and then being shocked that there are revolts and that people hate America over there. And this movie deals with the that like hurt masculinity and coming to terms with the fact that... What do you mean we can't win every war? What do you mean? And, uh... Oh, man. I don't know. Just play fucking music. I don't care. Either the Titus Andronicus one or the one from 300. We won't even be able to tell which one is which, honestly. Subscribe to the Patreon. That's all I gotta say. <laughs>